For the first time in two decades, The Oregonian has a new sports columnist. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, a conversation with Bill Oram. We talked about his extensive experience covering the Los Angeles Lakers, why he wanted to come home to Oregon, what he thinks of some of the major stories in the sports landscape here today, and much more. A quick programming note, we talked right before, like minutes before, Damian Lillard signed a two-year, $122 million extension. The existential questions, of course, about the Blazers and Dame's future are still relevant in NBA circles. Here's our conversation. Bill Orham, welcome back to The Oregonian, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So this is full disclosure for listeners. We've never spoken, to the best of my knowledge. Um, you've been a name and a and a face in the sports world and in the Oregonian world that I knew, but I don't think we've ever talked. So this is kind of a a fresh take here. It's like we're sitting in the newsroom. It's definitely the first 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 day of uh, school vibes and, <laughs> and getting and getting reacquainted with people I, you know, was familiar with from you know my past stint at the Oregonian and and like you said, just from um the sports world and 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 you know following news in the state of oregon you know i'm from here so i was always a close reader of the oregonian and um and its writers well we're excited to to have you and uh it kind of sounds crazy when you say it but this is the first new sports columnist at the papers in two decades uh john canzano is is gone so we figured this would be kind of a a good way to introduce you to some readers and listeners. So you mentioned you're an Oregonian. Uh, take us out to Tillamook County. What was young Bill Oram like? Uh, <laughs> what was your path to journalism? Well, I mean, it it was always sort of toward this, at least in my dreams, right? Like I grew up, you know, loving to write, loving sports. I mean, it's it's very much the cliche story of, you know, playing sports, but not well enough to really do anything with it. And I really had my eyes open to the fact that sports writing could be a profession through reading the Oregonian every day. My mom was a school teacher. So I was always the first kid to get to school and I would get in the building. I, I think probably at, in middle school in Beaver, Oregon, you know, 15 miles South of Tillamook, um, there would be that fresh stack of, of newspapers that was delivered to the school before anybody got there. And I got to be the person who snipped the the ribbon off the paper and I would take the one off the top and always open right up to sports. And I would read, you know, um, you know, some of the, the, the great, you know, Oregon, Oregonian sports writers of the nineties, um, you know, Jason Quick was there, Rachel Bachman was there, Paul Bucher, John Hunt, and obviously the, the columnists, uh, were, um, hugely, uh, inspirational to me and, and must reads. Um, you know, when, when Chuck Culpepper, uh, arrived, I remember reading his takes on Oregon sports and, and just thinking he had such an incredible, command of language and it felt like such an adventure to read any column that he wrote because it was fun it was just a fun experience to to get up in the morning and read that and then Kanzano came in and and it was the same I mean obviously a different style but um such command over over the material and so you know those two as well as you know really anybody else who came through uh the newsroom newsroom in those years um, did have a real influence on me. And I remember looking up to Oregonian sports writers as celebrities. I mean, I cringe at 
the idea that if anybody could go back and search their email inbox from like 2000 at the emails they would have <laughs> from me, just lavishing praise and asking for advice. But, you know, Katie Muldoon used to be a, a reporter at the Oregonian. And mm-hmm. I remember she wrote me a really long email explaining once, um, you know, some of the things I should do if I wanted to become a journalist. And, you know, I saved that email, you know, forever. I think I have it um, in a box somewhere still. Um, and, you know, it was the same with, uh, other reporters, Abby Haight, uh, who was a news reporter at the Oregonian, was was really kind to me at one point. So, um, you know, to be in this position now and for you to say, you know, the, the first news sports columnist in 20 years is is like that gives me chills because I have such an incredible reverence for the institution of the Oregonian, but most especially for you know the position of the sports columnist. And so to be here now, you know, to have to have gone off and I think we'll talk more about about this, but like to have gone off. Um, and, and covered other things and been away from Oregon and to now have the opportunity to come back, it feels it was such an incredible privilege and an honor and one that I'm excited to get, to get back, you know, to get started on. Yeah. So I guess that's a good segue to the media landscape for everyone listening to this and people working in, in the business. It's, it's ever shifting and it's like, you've worked for Metro dailies, you've worked for big Metro dailies, um, You've worked for new media startups that are acquired by, you know, the venerable New York Times coming from The Athletic. Um, mm-hmm. So what interests you about being a sports columnist in today's media landscape, um, you know, back at a paper that you worked at previously and that you talked about venerating so much? Yeah, so I, I had so my path real quick, because I yeah. left this out of the previous answer was. I you know kind of got my start in Salt Lake City covering high school sports and and did a bunch of stuff in Salt Lake you know up until I was covering the Utah Jazz left there to go to the Orange County Register and then the Athletic covering the Lakers uh, for um, the last nine years so that I mean you know that has really been an eye opening sort of journey in terms of you know from keeping your own stats covering high school football in the snow in Utah to <laughs> you know watching LeBron James score you know 50 points watching Kobe score 60 points on his last in his last game getting getting stared down by Russell Westbrook you know so i mean it's you know it's been it's been a you know really fulfilling path and i i've but even when i was with the athletic and you know obviously newspapers have continued to evolve like you said and 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 gotten smaller I always feel like the voice of the columnist in a city is so important. Um, the opportunity to sort of set the agenda for for sports news in that town. I think readers and fans still look to a columnist who earns their trust. Obviously, it's not just it's not about the position; it's about the person and the relationship that that columnist establishes with the readership. But I think that that is still one of the most special relationships that that it could exist in in journalism. And you know, in terms of you know actual column writing. That's sort of what I grew into at The Athletic. I wrote um, a lot of opinion and a lot of perspective pieces on the Lakers. And, you know, I loved that. And they gave me the freedom to do that because that's not necessarily what I was hired to do. Um, You know, but I sort of expanded beyond just daily beat coverage to having a more, you know, refined perspective. And, you know, now the opportunity to expand that beyond the very comfortable with in, a, in an area I know really, really well um, to, you know, other sports and other teams that I feel connected to because I grew up here because I grew up in South Tillamook County and, you know, would rush home from basketball practice to watch the Ducks and Beavers play, um, you know, because of, of that connection. Like I do feel like, you know, it's interesting. I feel 
like I'm not new, but because I haven't covered those teams, I do feel like I'm going to come at it with a new perspective. And that's, and that's a really exciting opportunity to come back and, and tell the stories of teams and communities that I care about and love, but with fresh eyes. And so that's, um, that's what excited me about this specific opportunity. Um, in addition to just having a really high regard for, you know, the great sports columnists, uh, who continue to do great work at, at daily newspapers. I want to get to all the the local teams in a second, but uh, I think it's, you know, the Lakers are obviously one of the most iconic sports franchises in, in the world. And you covered them during a very weird, <laughs> very weird time. Um, wh- when you look back at, you know, when you get a little separation, like what kind of, uh, big moments, I guess, will stand out to you because obviously the bubble and the pandemic, you know, and the LeBron title, but I mean, the Kobe situation, I mean, what, what are you going to take away from that, from that experience? Cause it's gotta be just a bizarre one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of what I take away from it in totality. Cause it was, you know, it was such an unfamiliar dynamic for me going in and, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with people with or around the Lakers. I didn't, you know, I never worked in a media market like Los Angeles before. I'd never competed against reporters like Mike Bresnahan and Dave McMenamin before. I mean, that just felt like, you know, really raising the bar professionally. And I went in there, you know, at 26 years old, maybe, uh, feeling, you know, like very much like a fish out of water and out of my depth and, and kind of growing to a point where I had, you know, where I felt like I was, you know, by the end holding my own and, and hopefully then some, um, you know, was, uh, you know, was a really fulfilling sort of stretch of time. But like you said, I mean, probably the strangest 10 years that anyone could cover the Lakers in franchise history. My first season was right after Kobe tore his Achilles tendon, which, you know, the Lakers were trying to sort of salvage, you know, more championship years out of Kobe's career. Mm-hmm. And um, when he tore his Achilles, they were really trapped in this, purgatory of, well, is he going to be able to come back and keep playing like Kobe or is this the end? And the answer was that it really was more or less the end. And so he kept kind of trying to come back and then had additional injuries. And so covering that team sort of when there was kind of the messaging of like, Hey, we're trying to win, but there was the reality of they couldn't win. That was a very awkward time. And then there was the, you know, the, the infusion of youth, the lottery years, the tanking years, getting all these young players like Brandon Ingram and Julius Randle and D'Angelo Russell and Lonzo Ball trying to build a new foundation and then basically throwing all that, you know, cashing in on all that, um, all those assets when they had the opportunity to add Anthony Davis and once LeBron James had come. But but to see the Lakers go from, you know, really what you would consider to be rock bottom after Kobe's injury and no clear path forward and and free agents from, you know, Carmelo Anthony to LaMarcus Aldridge to Greg Monroe are telling the Lakers they're not interested um, to then see them start sort of start to grow organically. And it felt like they had something building to then say, Oh, wait a minute, we're the Lakers. Let's just get LeBron and, and then win that way um, was interesting. But, you know, I have a real, you know, love hates, not the right word, but um, complicated relationship with the Lakers because I, you know, have so much, respect and admiration for the history of the Lakers and for so many of the people who are there. I think Jeannie Buss is just an incredible human being and owner. But at the same time, I feel like the Lakers keep tripping over their own feet where they, um, they are so tunnel visioned on getting the next star or on getting, um, 
on taking the the fastest path to winning that I feel like they miss steps and then they, you know, they fall into potholes that they dug for themselves. And so last year, you know, them not being successful when they had, um, you know, gone out and signed a bunch of guys who were good six years ago was not surprising. Having injuries, you know, to guys like Trevor Ariza, you know, was not surprising. Blazer fans who watched Kent Bazemore three years ago were not surprised that he wasn't particularly effective with the Lakers. So, um, I sometimes question their management uh, and I'm not, and I sometimes wish that they could take a, um, a more holistic approach to team building, but also you lose the ability to do that when you have LeBron James at 38 years old, trying to still win. And, and they went through that with Kobe too. So, I mean, I, I, as much as I get frustrated by it, I do understand it. Well, let's stick with the NBA because I will never understand the Russell Westbrook trade. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just say, I will never understand the Russell Westbrook trade. It was dumb when they did it. It's dumb now. And if they get bailed out and are able to trade him for Kyrie Irving and Kyrie shows up and is suddenly a model citizen, it would be the most Laker thing ever to like actually get away with the Westbrook trade and then find a way out of it. Like that would be the sort of luck that only the Lakers get. Yeah, yeah. Go back in time not too long, uh, the Pau Gasol trade where which left most people in the league scratching their heads and led to a, a couple titles. So um anyone who follows me or listens <laughs> to me on this podcast or anywhere else knows that I, I love the NBA. Um and so you have covered multiple franchises and been around the association for a long time now. So let's just stick with the NBA. I mean what is the outside perception of the Blazers, um, I guess, that you heard from from your seat down there? Um, and then what do you make of this franchise, which, you know, obviously there's the Ducks and the Beavers and whatnot. But I mean, this is kind of the in many ways, the lifeblood of the state in the sports world. And it's a fascinating time. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it is a fascinating time, and I I like the moves that they've made this off season. You know, I think Jeremy Grant is a really good fit, and you know, I think he's a good fit next to Dame, and he's a guy who's coming in after having been the number one option for a couple of years. He doesn't have to be that anymore, but he's also not going to be the sixth man that he was in Denver. But I mean, you know, the Blazers just have big questions to answer, and and you know, obviously one of those is ownership. Jody Allen, um, you know, has has insisted that the team isn't for sale, but at the same time saying that the trust can be dissolved over 15 to 20 years, isn't good enough. Like the NBA is not going to let, you know, the, the Blazers sort of flap in the wind for 15 to 20 years while Paul Allen's trust gets sorted out. Like that requires a more decisive outcome one way or the other. Um, and, you know, when you look at, you know, on the court, the biggest, the biggest issue is, is, is Damian Lillard. And, you know, he's young, he's 31, I believe, you know, he is um, in the prime of his career and he has shown an uncommon loyalty to the Blazers. And the, the, the eternal question the Blazers are going to have to answer is, can they assemble a championship team without trading Damian Lillard? Can they build a team around him or do, is the path forward to take the step back of trading him? Like we've seen, you know, franchises around the league do. And obviously Dame is committed to the Blazers. The Blazers have said they're committed to him. And, and so if that's the case, you know, I think they've made productive steps, you know, to build as good of a team as possible around him. I like the two way um, talent. Josh Hart obviously had a great second half of the season. Uh, Gary Payton, Jeremy Grant. I mean, those are really good impact, you know, high level role players. Um, 
But the Dame question is going to be eternal, I think. And, you know, he's eligible for an extension this summer. Everyone expects him to sign it. But what is the ceiling? And I don't know how many more years of, you know, 500, you know, seven seed, you know, that the Blazers can keep asking themselves those questions because, you know, and the other thing that I think about a lot, Andrew, and, and maybe you have thoughts on this too, is what is the value of a superstar who really wants to be your superstar and wants to be here, especially in a market like Portland, where the only path really to getting a player of that caliber is through a trade or draft. Um, relative, what is the value of, of that kind of commitment and loyalty relative to a championship? Because, you know, trading Dame does not necessarily guarantee you a championship. If it did, you would do it, of course. But if, but part of sports fandom is, is, is the struggle. And, you know, Blazer fans know all too well that part of being a fan is, is not winning and, you know, getting so close to the mountaintop, whether it's 2000 or 92 or 90 and feeling like it's going to happen. And then it doesn't, you know, is, is having a superstar who wants to be part of that struggle with you more meaningful than maybe what the analytics say you should do or what the, the wonky trade machine, you know, could, could get you, um, you know, and that's something I think about a lot because I mean, when, when the Blazers traded, you know, Clyde Drexler, that was viewed as doing right by Clyde. You know, he was ready to go get it, go get a ring. And he was more or less the same age as Dame is now, I believe. I think so. It obviously yeah. had more success, um, team success. Um, but you know, he wanted to leave and that sort of allowed the, the Blazers to turn the page and, and, and retool. But if Dame is not in that same place and he wants to be here and it's just understanding the, the way the market responds to the blazers and responds to loyalty. I, I think you have to, I think you have to stick with the guy who wants to ride with you. Like that's, that's, that's a rare thing to find here. Yeah. When I think of in my life, you know, as a Oregonian, I grew up in Bedford. Um, you know, the, the the point that I was most distant in my fandom is the years that they were, you know, the absolute worst and the, the Victor Kriapa and <laughs> Sergei Monia and, um, you know, the teams that, you know, was, Ooh, you're, you're, you're digging. Yeah. Deep. I mean, I, so, and, and what's the thread there? There, there is no star. Um, you know, I guess if you're retooling in this era, um, maybe it's somewhere in between the, you know, trading Clyde, there's still a lot of veteran talent on that team. Um, you know, trading Dame, if, if that were to come to pass at some point, you have young and promising players, unlike the, the Victor Kriapas of the world, but, right. uh, but the sting I think would be. Well, one, th- one, th- one thing, what, the sting would be significant. And one thing that, you know, people around the league always say is, you know, the worst place you can be in the NBA is in the middle. You know, you either want to be you know, really good or you want to be really bad so you can get really good. And, you know, the Blazers, I think, have been pretty locked in, in the middle. And they have built a team for next year that is going to be in the middle. And I guess I just have more respect for, I think there is a nobility to wanting to be in the middle, you know, and wanting to grind and wanting to compete and wanting to be a tough out. And, and because being bad to be good is... It doesn't, especially when you can't also like have like a confidence that you're going to be able to lure free agents. Draft picks only go so far. Like the Lakers 
could get bad to get good because they could say, you know, once we have some talent, guys are going to want to come here. And that's true. And just historically, that hasn't been the case in Portland. Historically, you know, the Blazers have not been able to attract, you know, the high end unrestricted free agents. I think that is a more dangerous game to play when you're in a position like Portland where, you know, hey, maybe you go out and you you win 50 games with with Dame and Jeremy Grant and this, you know, kind of thorny, tenacious defensive team. And then guys do want to come here. And maybe that and you are attracting more high-level role players who want to come on the mid-level to Portland instead of, say, Houston. Um, create an environment the guys want to come to, I think, is a perfectly reasonable strategy. All right, let's take a quick break. And then we're going to talk a bit more with Bill Oram, the new sports columnist for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. So, Bill, when you were at the O previously, you covered local government, among other things, right? No, I did cops and courts. cops and courts. All right, cops and courts in in the in the West Bureau. Yeah, Westie. I was I was also a Westie. We were commiserating about that uh, those old days that are long gone. But I'm curious. So, you've what like how did covering local institutions? <laughs> how do you bring those skills? And then covering a billion dollar enterprise like the Lakers, like, are there any commonalities there that you can pull from to kind of that you'll draw from as you're kind of cutting your teeth as a columnist for the Oregonian? Are there any commonalities or things you'll try to bring to to readers there? Yeah, the the, the through line is journalism, you know, not to be not to be cheesy or high and mighty about it, but, you know. In sports, you know, we're still journalists. You know, I got into this business because of a love of of reporting, of making phone calls, of of seeking information and truth. And you know, those days in the West Bureau, working for Tom Maurer was my editor out there. Um, you know, he gave me you know really great opportunities, and, and, and that I didn't even recognize at the time. But he challenged me as a reporter because you know my first day on the cops beat, even there was a murder suicide in Tualatin. And I was sent out, sent out to the medical clinic in Tualatin and had to, you know, had to find things out about, you know, this tragedy that had un- unfolded in our coverage area. You know, I spent the next several months, you know, knocking on doors of families of murder victims, of murderers, of, you know, going to crime scenes, you know, talking to the police. And that was just so far out of my comfort zone at the time. You know, I had had sports internships. I'd been the editor of my college newspaper and written columns, you know, going after the director of residence life for overcrowding the dorms. Like that was my <laughs> journalistic existence up to that point. And so um, the, the opportunity to like do, you know, real, you know, boots on the ground journalism that was not, you know, was not sitting in a press box and not waiting for a box score to be handed to you it really challenged me and has, has really um, shaped me as a reporter. And so because of that, I'm so much more comfortable going into um, unfamiliar spaces, knocking on doors as a part of our profession, whether you're in, you know, sports or not. And so, you know, that's sort of the backbone of what I, you know, intend to bring to, to this new role. Um, and, and, and listen, there's no shortage of serious news stories happening, you know, under the umbrella of sports in, in the state of Oregon. I mean, you look at the scandals that have unfolded with the Timbers and Thorns over the last year, obviously the ownership situation with the Blazers, there's been some you know reporting out there about Jody Allen, that's going to require significant follow-up. And then obviously the state of the PAC 12, I mean, which might be the most disruptive 
uh, story for Oregon sports in our lifetimes, um, completely changing the structure of how we think about our sports institutions. If you take the balls away, you know, those are significant news stories. I mean, they are the kinds of stories you see in government, whether it's issues of abuse of power, harassment, um, you know, uh, and then, and then institutions, uh, money, money. There you go. That's the, that's the, that, that's the, that's the, the one that you see in, in almost everything. Money always talks. And one journalism lesson I learned at the university of Montana was if there's, if there's money in this story, put it up high. Cause that's always, that's always at the heart of things. Yeah. Imagine when you took this gig, Bill, you didn't think that, you know, um, at some point a visit down to the Rose bowl or to the Coliseum might be the last one, um, for the foreseeable future in, in the football world. What do you make of, um, of this, this seismic shift? Was there any inkling when you were down there that LA schools wanted out any scuttlebutt about that? No. I mean, I think, you know, the reaction of the people I know who are close to the programs at USC and UCLA was just as much surprise as the people I know at Oregon and Oregon state. Um, it, you know, just like you said, seismic has completely rocked, um, college sports. It's so depressing for me as somebody who grew up and understands the role that the USC and UCLA's of the world play for Oregon and Oregon state, like Oregon state's football history, like it's best moments. I mean, almost, exclusively are when they beat USC in, in, in at various points, you know, whether it was, you know, those, those teams in, in the sixties um, or the giant killers. If it was the, the giant killers. Yeah. And then obviously the Jaquiz Rogers team, his, his coming out, the, the kind of opportunity to punch up and, and knock out those, um, those Titans or perceived Titans of, of the college football landscape, you know, was, is a huge part of being Oregon state. And obviously Oregon has not only closed that gap and in some ways exceeded the, um, and in many ways exceeded those programs in, in terms of success. I mean, by far over the last two decades, but you know, those were the tentpole schools of the PAC 10 PAC 12 and, you know, they go away and it takes away a whole lot of the identity, I think, of being one of the other schools in the conference. And that's something that I think we're all going to have to readjust to is sort of what it means to be in this conference when, you know, those schools aren't there anymore. I know anytime you start a new beat, having done it many times as you have that, you know, you you try not to have any preconceived notions about what the stories might be or who you need to get to know or whatnot. But I mean, what what kind of stories are you eager to tell when you think about, you know, your, your new position and what kind of columns, I guess, uh, if you can speak again by, after I just set you up saying we don't, we try not to do that, but I mean, what, what can people expect from reading a Bill Oram column in the Oregonian? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope it's, it's, um, it's going to be some of, everything. I mean, I, I don't want it to be a, a formula. I, I want to get to know the athletes of this state and, and tell their stories, but also the fans. And, you know, if there is a sports connection to um, something that is happening in a community, I want to tell that story, whether it's, you know, in the smallest town in Oregon or on the biggest stage of the NBA. And so, you know, if there is a story happening in someone's community, I would love to, I would love to hear about it. Um, but I also, you know, and I think I've shown in my, um, in my time covering the Lakers unafraid to um, challenge, you know, authority and institutions when that is merited. But, you know, 
this is not going to be a situation where I'm just going to, you know, be, be knocking, you know, institutions and, and constantly pointing out their flaws. Like I am very proud to be an Oregonian. I'm proud to have a chance to have a voice on, on, um, the institutions of Oregon sports and, and to celebrate their, their best moments and, and the people who help them materialize. And so I'm going to be looking for those stories, whether it's at a game, whether it's at a practice, whether it's on the, on the highway between um, Corvallis and Eugene, if I'm on the road and I'm, you know, I see, you know, something that seems like there might be a sports story in a, in a pasture, I'm going to go, I'm going to go find it. So I'm just excited to, you know, dig into the state. You know, I've identified so deeply with Oregon grew up, you know, my father was a, a district ranger in the U.S. Forest Service on the coast. I am an eighth generation Oregonian. My family like came over in 1845 on the Oregon Trail. My great, 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 however many greats grandfather helped cut the Barlow Trail with Sam Barlow. Like this is in my blood. It's in my DNA. And so um, the opportunity to tell the stories of this place I love is like jet fuel for me. Like I am so excited to be in this position and have the opportunity and tell stories that hopefully no one else is is seeing and no one else is ready to tell, but I am. Well, we're excited to read your stuff and uh, I appreciate you taking time to, to chat and look forward to meeting you in person. Thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Expect to see more of Bill and Prince online and in the podcast world very soon. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.